Now, today we're going to continue our new series entitled Standing Firm. I began this last week. It's sort of our summer series. And this teaching comes from the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians, which is a great book that really focuses on uh, sort of a robust and thriving life in Christ. And we're looking at the back end of this where Paul tells us, he instructs us, legitimately instructs us, to take the truth of Jesus' gospel. What I simply mean by this is all of the things we have come to know about God through Christ, all of the grace and the truth we have experienced in him, all of the ways that he has sort of instructed us to live and love, not just ourselves, but the world he's placed us in. In this section of scripture, Paul tells us to put on all of that stuff in the form of what he calls a spiritual protection, the full armor of God. And God gives us this armor, what we read about and will read about in the weeks that follow. God gives us this armor so that we can stand firm in the Lord throughout the various trials we face in life and as we labor for the mission of God in our everyday circles of influence. Some of the things we talked about a moment ago, it's incredibly important that we understand that God has given us not just an authority, but he's equipped us to actually accomplish the things in, that we try to do in his name. For example, helping men and women find, grow, and know the grace of Jesus. It's a very important passage of Scripture, very applicable in a lot of ways. And so last week, we spent our time discussing why the Apostle Paul gave us this command to stand firm in the ways of Jesus. I won't revisit that today, but in short, I'll give you the, the summation. Because we live in a world that is often opposed to the ways of God, sometimes there are systems, what the Bible calls schemes or authorities, principalities. There are things in the world that disadvantage people. And Jesus wants us to be the type of people who, in his name, seek to bring light to the areas of the world where there is darkness. And so because of that, we biblically define who Satan is and what his schemes are. His word, that word is mentioned in this text. The word the devil is used. And we, in sort of a very detailed way, spoke about the name of the devil. That word comes from an Old Testament word, a Jewish word known as the accuser or the adversary. The word Satan simply means the one who is opposed to the ways of God. And if you are in Jesus and trying to live out his ways, he stands in opposition to you. And so do the schemes that he erects on this earth, which predominantly manifest themselves in the form of lies. And the reason we connected these two truths is because it's critical that we know there is such a thing as a Satan. And there are forces, according to Paul, in this world and outside of this world that really want to impede the growth and the progress of humanity. While Jesus wants all of humanity to flourish in his name, there are things in this world that really don't care for the same thing. They seek to undermine and rob us of the fullness in life that Jesus not only said we could have, but died so that we could have. And the way that we sort of fall prey or victim to these things is when we distort truth or when we embrace the lies or the schemes of the enemy. We also learn there are a slew of earthly circumstances, often brought about because of the nature of our fallen world, that will seek to do the same thing, rob us of the fullness of Jesus. And so regardless, regardless excuse me, of the origin of our trial, whether from this world or from the heavens, Paul tells us if we clothe ourselves in God's spiritual armor, then we have everything we need from the heavens to deal with anything we face on this earth. We are given a set of tools provided for us by God so that we can thrive on this earth. And I don't mean live in a perfect world. I don't mean live perfect lives. I simply mean it is possible for us to follow Jesus faithfully for all the days of our lives, even with our faults and failures, when we really take seriously the whole Bible, obviously, but in particular truths like this that show us there are tools and support for us that come directly from the throne of God so we can follow Jesus faithfully for all of our days. And so today we're going to add to what I spoke about last week, this idea of standing firm. We're going to layer a part two onto this. The teaching I gave last week 
was a, a significant one. If you haven't heard it, I would encourage you to listen to it. This is certainly a standalone message, but that will be a good foundation for you to understand in more detail some of the things we're, we're talking about today. Last week, we identified why we need the armor of God. Today, we're going to look at the first tool or the first piece of armor Paul says we need to have and apply in our lives if we're going to stand firm against our adversary in this world and against the things that seek, seek to rob us from the goodness and the grace of Christ. And so let's jump in, uh, jump right in and get started. One main idea I want to talk about this morning. The foundational piece of armor we are given to stand firm against the lies of Satan in this world is the belt of truth. There's one undergirding piece of equipment that the Bible references as the belt of truth, which serves as the foundation for everything that we are actually going to talk about in the weeks that follow. So Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 through 14 say this, Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, when the day of trial comes, when the day of suffering comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Before we get to the, the, the belt of truth, I want to mention something here. This text talks about the day of evil or trial or suffering. The idea behind this is that there is a day when it will come. There's a day when it's actually going to, to affect our lives. And so the Bible is concretely telling us that these things will be a reality in our lives. And what we want to do is prepare ourselves for them so that we can stand firm against them when they arrive in our lives. And we get this idea of the belt of truth. This is what he talks about. Wearing the belt of truth is one of the ways that we are able to stand firm. Now in the ancient world, a belt was a crucial piece of a soldier's gear. We probably had an instant image in our mind when I said the word belt. And while today they're largely a decorative piece people wear on custom fitted jeans, like for example, I am wearing jeans right now that fit me, but for some reason I have a belt on. And you might be saying, why? The answer is, I don't know why. I just know like since I've been six years old, I've been wearing a belt. And I have jeans that if, like, if I took my belt off, my pants would not fall down, and yours would likely not either. But for some reason, we wear belts in this world, and they are largely decorative. In the ancient world, they were literally the centerpiece, though, of a soldier's armor. There was a critical need to wear the belt. And while the belt isn't technically a piece of armor, because it doesn't actually protect us or protect a soldier from anything, it functioned in a very important role. It functioned as the foundation for which all of the other armor was built upon. Because in those days, when somebody was going to war, the, these soldiers typically wore long flowing robes like we do jeans. It was sort of customary to wear that and still is in the eastern part of the world. A lot of people still dress this way. And so when it was time to go to war, these folks would pick up their robes and tuck them into their belts so that they could move more freely. In other places, if you've read the Bible to any degree, you will know this also as girding up your loins. It's the same idea that you're going to pick up those long flowing robes, tuck them in a way so that you can be more agile. Doing this was a sign that a soldier was preparing themselves for battle. And this is the analogy Paul uses to, to describe the belt of truth for us. In Paul's analogy, the belt of truth serves a similar function as we equip ourselves to spiritually stand firm for Jesus. Now let me give you some modern examples of the central nature of what a belt does in places where it's used for more than just a decorative purpose. For example, think of a police officer's belt. If you were to poll this room and ask what is the most essential piece of equipment a law enforcement officer wears, we would all likely say the pistol. That is sort of the thing we, we most recognize when it comes to a law enforcement officer. But what's interesting about this is even though that's true, it's an important piece of gear, we'd be naive to not see what the pistol hangs on. A duty, belt, a duty belt. And so I want you to think about this for a moment. 
For a police officer, their belt is the central command for how they accomplish their job. They carry every tool they need to do their job on it. Handcuffs, flashlight, pepper spray, a pistol, a host of other light items. It is the foundation of all their gear. They refer to it and reference it, doing whatever it is that they need to do. Without it, they would be less effective in accomplishing their duty because the tools they need to get it done are no longer there. You can apply this to any career that requires a belt. Let me give you a, another one. Think about a carpenter's tool, somebody who, a tool belt, somebody who works with wood. All that amazing wood work that a carpenter does, they often wear a, tool, a, a belt around their, their waist where tools are tucked into it. There are pockets and sleeves and all kinds of things that are commonly used to accomplish their job. In both cases, the belt is a central command of their operation. It's what enables them to accomplish the mission set before them. They have a multitude of ways to do a multitude of things because they are wearing a belt that supports their mission. Law enforcement, or in this case, a carpenter. And so it's this idea that Paul gives us to talk about the tools we need to have to follow Jesus well in this world. And he's trying to tell us that the same mission principle is true for the Christian life when they, when you and I pursue Jesus. When we put on the belt of truth, what happens here is we are now girding ourselves in a way where we can actually accomplish the things Jesus wants us to do. He's saying if we want to live in the fullness of Jesus, accomplish the mission of Jesus, and stand firm against the schemes of the enemy, it begins when we put on the belt of truth. It's the first step in our offensive posture. Every other piece of armor that we are going to talk about in some form or fashion is built around it. This is the foundation of everything he talks about here. And in Christianity, there is only one definitive source of truth. We refer to this as the scripture or, or the Bible. There is an objective truth, an objective reality that God wants us to understand so that we can know him, understand Jesus, and flourish in the world as individual Christians and certainly as a society on the whole. Now, before we proceed, we do need to make a critical distinction here. Later on, Paul talks about us putting on the sword of the Spirit, which is a literal reference that assumes the discipline of Bible study in our lives. But here he means something a little different. Here, I want you to think about the foundation word that I used a couple of times. Here he's saying, to put on the belt of truth means you have made God's truth in the Scripture the ultimate authority in your life by believing and following what God says in it. So, for example, next week we're going to talk about the breastplate of righteousness. That word righteousness is a word talked about a lot in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. In fact, we learn that one of the things Jesus did for us on the cross is he took our unrighteousness and gave us his righteousness. The old hymnals call this the double cure. It's the idea that he literally took from us what was keeping us from God and put in us what could reconcile us to God. That is an incredibly important theology to understand. It is one of the foundational truths that we, we believe the resurrection, the redemption nature of what Jesus did for us is built upon. Very important. But we only know that there is this idea in the Bible, the, this breastplate of righteousness, because we have to a certain degree at least committed to exploring the truth of the Bible. And my point here is you'll never fully embrace the righteousness of Jesus if you don't have a general understanding that says, I'm going to try to read this stuff and understand what God means by it. He is saying that this is a true statement. And as we look at these things, our assumption is going to be that these things are true. We make a great place in this room for people to have questions, to be skeptical, to dissent. We're not sort of a carbon copy church here, but we are constantly coming from this idea that what the Bible says is true. And so the idea of this, this tool, the, the, the belt of truth, is that we wear these other truths because we functionally and foundationally desire to understand the truth of God. 
the approach we have when we go to the Bible, even if we disagree, which happens a lot if we're going to be honest, might be something like this. God, I don't get this. I don't understand this. I don't even really agree with this. But I know you are my God, and I want to, I want to understand this. So work in my heart in a way where I can understand, where I can be brought to the place where you say this, whatever this is, is an important thing for me to believe and live my life by. And so what this means is God's truth in the Scripture is the ultimate authority in our lives. We try to believe it and follow it. And what this means in a practical sense is in Christianity, although these things I'm about to mention are very popular today, they are problematic. It means in Christianity it's problematic to say, I believe the Bible and some other life philosophies. That doesn't mean that there aren't other good truths in the world, but whenever there are truths that begin to contradict God's truth, we have to make a decision about how we understand the belt of truth in our life. Or we say things like, I, I believe the Bible, except in the parts that make me uncomfortable. And I'm telling you, you cannot read the Bible and not be made uncomfortable. There are just places where Jesus will, he will challenge us, like at the depths of our soul, in the minute, minute corners of our bone marrow. There are just things he asks us to do and be. There are people he asks us to serve and love that might rub us the wrong way. There are all kinds of things in the Bible that Jesus says, if you want to follow me, I want to call you to a new way. I want to help you understand what it means to love your neighbor. I want you to understand what it means to live in a way that honors my death. There are times when we read the Bible and this thing is going to be challenging. So we can't just omit those things. We have to wrestle with them. Or maybe we say I'm a professing Christian, but I just don't read the Bible at all. This is also very common. Anytime we mention scripture, I talk about the rampant state of biblical illiteracy in the modern church. This is identified now in every statistic and scholarly piece of information that we have. The Christian church each year grows more illiterate in the Bible. It means that we're not all of us, obviously, but there's a great many people trying to follow God or loving Jesus without this belt of truth, without the foundation of this. And so to put on the belt of truth simply means that you and I and all we live and do are trying to bring our lives in, in line with God's truth, not the other way around. I don't mean that in a perfect, naive or idealistic way. I simply mean we want to make the foundation of what we do understanding and growing in God's truth. Because if we see truth, especially God's belt of truth, any other way, what it likely means is we are beginning to seed ground to the schemes of the devil, which are predominantly lies. So anytime we pursue something outside of the truth of the scripture, it means we're embracing something that is likely going to be a lie. It contradicts the way God has, has ordered the world. Over time, it means that you and I will likely start to embrace the lies of the enemy, the literal lies of the enemy. And that never leads to anything productive, ever. You cannot find a narrative in the Bible where a follower of Jesus or a follower of God in the Old Testament is, is seeding themselves to the lies of the enemy where that ends well. We have to know that our lives must be undergirded by God's truth. Because the main tactic the enemy will use to derail you and I from our faith, our peace, and, and the joy we are promised in Jesus are the subtle lies that he offers us. And this is why Jesus himself, in the Gospel of John, literally calls the devil the father of lies. While we have a father of light and life in heaven, he recognizes, he recognizes another authority. There is a father of lies on this earth. And the father of lies, the devil, the Satan, his scheme, his original scheme, is lying. In fact, it's his only scheme. There's only one tool this guy has. He just becomes expert at customizing these lies into the lives of the people that he seeks to destroy, whether it's directly or through his schemes. And I said last week that you are more likely to come in contact with the schemes of the enemy. We spent a good amount of time identifying who the devil was not. He is not God's evil equivalent. 
He is not an authority like God. He is given a certain amount of freedom in this season of life. He is not a God of, of, of meanness or negativity. He is a lowercase g God. One that has no power or authority in our life unless we permit him to have it. The schemes are more likely to affect our lives than him directly because he's not everywhere at all times like God is. That said, no matter where our trial comes from, the heavens or the earth, we need to be ready to deal with them. And I want to give you two examples of the lies of the enemy, of his schemes in action, and the way that they have actually contributed to the negative side of humanity. First, we'll look at Adam and Eve in the garden. We'll start with the original lie. Satan's original lie to humanity was when he convinced Adam and Eve to betray God's love and trust through disobedience. This is the first encounter we read in the Bible of a lie being, being sort of presented to people following God. A, a, a contradictory perceived truth is what's happening here. We say this, and the father of lies says that. And he tries to coerce Adam and Eve into believing something that God has told them to stay away from. What happens here is he whispers things to them like, Surely God's heart won't be broken if you violate my command to stay away from this tree. I've told you, like, the whole world is yours. Just stay away from this one tree. Surely he won't be angry. This is what he says. Subtle, deceptive. In fact, not only will he not be happy, but God will be pleased with you. Because he knows if you eat of this tree, you'll see things like he does. You'll understand good and evil like he does. The truth is, is if you live like this, you'll be more like God. What a clever way to deceive. And what's most interesting about this story is that both Adam and Eve clearly knew that this was not the truth. Before they actually make the decision to transgress God, one verse before that, they tell the father of lies, hey, God actually told us not to eat of this tree. So they know the truth. It's in their head. But their actions show us something different. They, they, might, have, they might have heard the truth, but they didn't understand it to the place where it actually affected a decision. They were not undergirded by it. Because they fell prey to this seductive lie that their sin would satisfy them in a way that God would. And what they learned is that that's not the truth of sin. It's a deceptive thing we can embrace him that promises to fulfill us in ways that God will, but never delivers. In fact, it, it draws us away from God. And at the core of this episode is a lie. You know, we can talk about details in this narrative all day, all day long. But the core of what happens here is that a lie is told. It's the scheme of the enemy. The great scheme of the enemy is the lie. And when you peel the layers of this back, you'll see it at the root of every sin. I don't care which one it is. At the root of every sin, there is always a slight twisting of the truth. In Genesis, humanity believes that knowledge, which is important, obviously, but here they believe knowledge is going to give them a satisfaction in God that God alone could not give them. And every sin since then finds its root in the mechanics of this original sin. Sin believe, begins when you and I believe that this lie, that we can find fulfillment from something that isn't God, like a relationship, an object, a lifestyle, whatever it is. We try to find an ultimate satisfaction in something that is not God, as if it were God. And it cannot. We would not have been given Jesus if we could have ultimately, head, heart, and soul, been made happy and joyous by the things our world provides us. God knew that would not be enough. So he gives us something from, from his world. He gives us his son. And any time we look to something as if it's Jesus or Jesus-like, we are likely to not only fall away from Jesus, but we might actually be, be deceived in the sense that we are beginning to pursue something that actually hurts us and the heart of God. Nothing can satisfy us like Jesus. And the root of every lie that the enemy tells us is something else will. Let me give you another story. Secondly, let's look at the story of King David and Bathsheba. 
King David is described in the Bible as being a man after God's own heart. This is the literal definition the Bible prescribes to him. He has a relationship with God that defines a nation. Yet he gets to this place in his life where he pursued an intimate relationship with another man's wife and had Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, who was a faithful servant of God to the nation of Israel and a loyal military leader in his army. He actually had him murdered on the battlefield to cover up this affair. That's a pretty, it's a short paragraph with a ton of implications, okay? How does someone this close to God do something so very far from the heart of God? It almost always begins when you fall prey to the schemes of the enemy. It almost always begins when you embrace the beginnings of a subtle lie. So think about this. And this statement here is true of of any lie that we might seek to investigate. Think about this. David doesn't just get up one day and say, seems like a fine day to pursue another man's wife and and then murder her husband and cover it up. That was not his A-game the day he woke up. David did not start there. He ends up here. And this narrative in 2 Samuel shows us this. His action begins with the slow self-deception that we read about in 2 Samuel 11.1. There we read this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. goes on to say, they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. They are literally dominating on the battlefield. But we learn in 2 Samuel a key statement. We go on and read, but David remained in Jerusalem. That's the key to this whole narrative, the beginning of it anyways. You see here as Israel's king, David had the specific responsibility to be in the field with his men fighting for his country. That was the duty of the king during this time of the year. To fight for his country, to be in the trenches with his army. However, he chooses not to do that. It seems like a really subtle thing to disobey. At a time when kings were to be off at war, David remained in Jerusalem. He chooses to disobey what is the obvious will of light of God for his life and his kingship by staying at home. There is a certain way David must conduct himself to remain the king of Israel. And he steps away from this for a short season. And what he does here is he believes one little lie. And the lie goes something like this. Surely the king doesn't need to be with his men right now. They're killing it out in the field. What do they need me here for? And what happens is that in turn leads to other lies and eventually down a disastrous path with major consequences. In this case, lie begets lie. And there's a point in, in these stories that I'm sharing with you. I don't want you to, first of all, hear me like being hyper-judgmental about these narratives. We all struggle with this truth. Every person, I know this might sound hard, but it's true. We all are capable and at times do lie. Maybe it's not outright lying. Maybe we're not intending to deceive. Maybe it is that. Or maybe there are just times where we subliminally tell ourselves things that we want to be right at the expense of God's truth. Every human has the propensity to lie. So I'm not speaking about these narratives on a pedestal talking down. They're not even in the Bible for that reason. They're in the Bible to show us a pattern so that we can learn to stay away from these subtle lies when they do present themselves to us. I guess what I want to say is in this case, we're all on the same playing ground. So my main point in sharing these stories is not to isolate these two narratives. It's to show us that there is a consistency. The mechanics are always the same. The circumstances change, but the mechanics are the same. What the Bible wants us to know here, what God wants us to know, is that the scheme of the enemy is always to subtly distort God's truth in our lives. And I want to share with you, sort of in closing, some of the most common ways he does this. There is a pattern of of lying that the enemy and the schemes of the world have that often repeat themselves in our lives. And I want to share a handful of them with you here this morning. Maybe put yourselves into the mindset of what I'm talking about here. 
It's when the enemy says something like, you know, surely you'll find a greater satisfaction in this life in something besides Jesus. So pursue it at his expense. It's when he gets you and I to turn to other gods, whether they are easily identified, you know, like in the big religions or the ones we make up in our own lives, the, the sort of forms of faith we develop that often reflect our image, not God's. That's a really big thing in our modern culture today. You know, it used to be that you sort of migrated to a handful of major religions. Now people, based on what their priorities are in life, often make up their religions as they go. So they have faith. It's just a faith in themselves. Sometimes our religions are a little bit more difficult to identify. But the truth of all humanity is that we are worshiping something. Everybody is pursuing something in life that they think is greater than themselves, which will bring about a satisfaction to them. You can see this in really good things that God has given us, like maybe success in our careers. We believe in something bigger than us, and we want to contribute to that. And sometimes what that means is we can be so blinded to everything else in our lives that we climb the ladder of success at the expense of other major or significant relationships in our lives. The, the tool of the enemy is to take good things and to distort them so they become bad things. And so it's when he gets you and I to turn to other things, the temporal pleasures of this world at the expense of the eternal goodness of God. This is where the lie is. We begin to trade the eternal for the temporal. Or it's when he tells us things like, after a message like this, if you've come here today and maybe you did come into this room down and depressed, maybe your soul is suffering, you hear a message like this where I'm trying to highlight the grace of Jesus and I'm encouraging you to pursue him today. Maybe in your head right now or your heart you hear things like, well, you can't go to Jesus. He'd never receive you like you are. That's ridiculous. You're a train wreck. Or the people here would never receive you. Even if Jesus did you, you know how the church, the church is. They'll never love you or care for you. There are some churches like that out there. This is not one of them. And Jesus would never say this to you because he died so that you and I could be in him. We don't have to be anything to be received by Jesus. We just have to be his child. That is all we need to be in Jesus. Maybe we're here saying, like, my past is crazy. It's beyond his grace. That is a lie. That is a lie of the enemy. Your past does not dictate Christ's sacrifice for you on the cross. So rest in him if this is your struggle this morning. Or it's when he says things to us like, those of you in Jesus, God loves you so much that he doesn't really care about what you do. He knows you're busy. He's okay with you not really ever turning to the belt of truth, the truth of Scripture. He's good with the fact that you don't really think about praying. Or he's okay with the fact that the scripture says he's literally given you a gift, at least one, to change the world. He's given you a gift empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve people in the name of Jesus. He's okay with you just forgetting about that for a while and, and practicing a form of nominal or marginal Christianity. Like God has supernaturally endowed us to do amazing things in this world. And we just forget that. It's okay to be in that place right now. Or it's when he tells you, like, hey, the church, this one, and all the ones around the world, they'll just be fine if you keep sitting in that seat. Or, you know, God knows you're too busy to, to use your gifts or to serve others. Or, you know, being generous, whether it's with our ties in a room like this for our church or in the circles of influence God provides for us to be generous in outside of this room. It's okay if you don't ever struggle with the lack of generosity in your life. Or it's okay maybe if... The motive is wrong for generosity. Forget about generosity. You don't need to think about any of that stuff. It's okay for you to sort of live in Jesus in private ways, but not necessarily in ways where you spread his light. That is a lie. Or on the other side of the fence, maybe you're the type of person doing all of these things, and a great many of you are. So the lie people like this will hear is when the enemy tells us, listen, uh, those things are super important. And the only way God will continue to love you is when you do all of those things perfectly. So when you fail in an opportunity to be generous or you have a season where your life isn't a shiny, polished, 
you know, you're not a shiny, polished sort of Christian warrior, killing it in every way. Maybe you have a season of sorrow or despair. You start to hear things like, well, certainly God can't love me because I'm, I'm not doing enough for him. That I've got to earn God's love every day. And unless I do all these things, he's just going to quit loving me. That's also a lie. It's just a different way to apply it to the place where our hearts are at. It's when he tells us that God doesn't love any of us and that we're all alone in this world. That we can't see beyond our physical existence. When the truth is, God has already declared in Jesus that he does love us. And he's given you and I the family of the church so that we could never be alone. We don't have to be alone. He's not only provided us his presence from the heavens, he's given us each other. So that we never have to cry or lament over this idea that we are alone in this world. We are given the presence of Jesus and the power of each other. It's when he says it's okay to, to persist in anger against your brother or sister in Jesus. Being justified in it. That you, know, you don't need to seek unity and reconciliation with somebody you have a disagreement with. And suddenly over time what happens is that anger boils. And even if it be, begins in a place of righteousness, that sin turns into bitterness. And eventually it damages your soul and the unity of the Spirit of Christ. That's the lie. It's when he seeks to oppress you and I with the guilt of the past. Causing us, think about this, this is one of the greatest tactics, greatest schemes of the enemy. Is when we live in the shackles of sin. When Jesus died to free us from those shackles. You know, we're sort of bound by our past or even our present sufferings. When God says he forgives that stuff as far as the east is from the west. That's the lie to know his grace is offered to us. But we can't for whatever reason receive it. It's when he seeks to remind you and I that the challenges we face in life right now, today, are beyond hope. You know, we can't see beyond this moment. Forget about our, our physical life experience. Causing our lives to be defined not, not by power humble power, authority, and truth, what happens is our lives begin to take on the mantra of fear and anxiety. That's how we're making decisions. We're always wondering what the next step in life is going to be, and it might actually be a step that you know, causes us to not be the types of people we want to be, that we're one sort of spiritual landmine away from being decimated because fear and anxiety rule the day. It's when he tries to get you and I to forget the many ways that God has cared for us in the past. This is the lie. And I just want you to know that when it comes to the schemes of the enemy, there are so many lies. I've spent probably 10 minutes talking to you about eight of them. But there are so, so, so many lies. There are, there are, there's no shortage of them. And that is why we need the belt of truth to discern and disarm them. The goal of following Jesus is not to identify every lie in the world. The goal of following Jesus is to discern his truth well enough to where we can know when the lie is presented to us. So my charge to you this morning is to, is to invite the truth into your life. That's the best way to do it. If you know the truth, you can identify a myriad of lies. If you focus all your time on the lies, you're likely to be very grumpy in life. That's a miserable existence. Because there are so many things that can be treacherous to us and can, can just create a, a, a downtrodden pathway in life. And so you see, just like Adam and Eve and David, Satan's scheme is seldom bold or outright. This is the idea behind what Paul speaks of. It's always subtle. It's almost always small. We might even say it's almost always a, a twisting of truth rather than a full-blown distortion. Go back to the garden. He doesn't roll up and say, dishonor God and disobey him. That's not his tactic. He's getting them to question very small things like, no, God didn't mean it that way. He meant surely you'll be like him. It's always this tactic. It's a twisting of truth rather than a full-blown distortion. When you get to the place where David is, the twisting of truth becomes the distortion. But in between these two poles is an, usually an expansive amount of time. There is the presence of the Holy Spirit speaking to us, 
He's undistorting the distortion. There is often the community of faith, other men and women who follow Jesus, who will be part of the way that God speaks to us to keep us on the path of His goodness and His truth. And this is why the foundational piece of armor God commands us to put on is the belt of truth. He's telling us when it comes to the deep issues of life, the ones that three-step blogs cannot solve, the significant issues in life, when our hearts really do lament and we can't read something and, make, and, and feel better and have all of our problems go away, he's telling us when it comes to the deep matters of life, you have to fight fire with fire. You've got to fight spiritual darkness with God's holy armor because if you don't, you'll lose the war. What Paul's saying is this, there is something beyond our flesh and God has given you Jesus Christ to deal with it. So don't keep him benched. Make sure him, his whole life, is, is, it's, it's a power in your life. And here's what fighting without the belt of truth usually looks like. I'll give you some sort of closing examples here. It's when you try to use willpower to deal with the deepest issues of life. I'm not against being disciplined or, or our will. I often talk positively about these things in this room. But I'm telling you that our discipline and our will is not enough to fight this battle. When we try to use sheer willpower, what we call bootstrap theology here, you spiritually try to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, you know, there's a physical sort of psalm that people use. It's like a colloquial, a secular psalm, you might say, where people are saying, like, this is out of your control. The same is true here. It's when we try to fight worry, here's a good example of this, by saying, uh, hey, I know worry doesn't solve anything, and the Bible says don't worry. So this would be like you coming to me or somebody in your community group and saying, I'm really struggling with worry today. And they look at you and say, I have an amazing piece of wisdom for you. Don't worry. Now pay for my lunch. Right? Right? You would be like, really? Because if you could just tell yourself not to worry, wouldn't you do that? Right? But the nights that I'm up, I'm like, don't worry. But I'm still awake. Okay? That's the reality of this. That we need a different authority. It's when you and I try to fight guilt by thinking about all the good things we've done. We take God's scale of economy and we throw it out. Where God says, listen, here's the truth. There's nothing you could do. You cannot be good enough to earn the love of my Father. And you actually don't have to be good enough. You just have to rest in the fact that I am good enough and die for you. But what happens here is we start thinking like, well, I did four bad things yesterday. I feel like I failed four times yesterday, so i got to do six things today. There actually is a belief system called karma in our world that believes that. And for a lot of people that believe in karma, they do really good things and some terrible things happen to them. That scale of economy is not a pound for pound thing. And what happens here is we start thinking like, I'll just be better to, to sort of blot out my transgressions. That, that, that can't work. Because if you're really haunted by your past, no matter what it is, that can, be, that can be a very traumatic thing. It can often hook us in ways where we feel like we can't overcome it. And I'm not naively saying that just trusting in Jesus makes it all go away. What I am saying is inviting Jesus into that gives you a support to be able to deal with that. You have his power and his presence in your life now. If you've ever suffered from guilt and depression, you know that just trying to be less guilty or to feel more happy doesn't work. You can't say, hey... I'm just not going to let my issues get me down today. What tends to happen is it's like a gorilla on your back. Eventually, they bring you down again. And so if this is you, in whatever way it is, the ones I've mentioned and the ones I don't even have time to mention, if you are fighting the forces of darkness with your own strength, if your own flesh at times drowns out the incredibly benevolent and gracious voice of Jesus, you have to know everything that we just said, this is in and of itself part of what the lie is. The great lie of the enemy, the greatest lie of the enemy is that you actually don't need God. That's the origin of the garden. And in the story of David and Bathsheba, it's the same thing. He moves away from the pathway that God has for him into things that create problems. Every single sin, every scheme is connected to thinking something will satisfy us like God 
in a way that God cannot. That is the root of every lie. He wants us disconnected from Jesus. But Jesus wants you to know his truth and his grace stand at the ready to combat those lies. In fact, when you come to Christ, if his truth is in you, his truth can sustain you in the times when you don't even believe in his truth. He has promised to be in you, with you, even in the days where you cannot be with him. He has promised, according to the Great Commission, to never leave or forsake you and I. Even in our weakness, God has made a way through Jesus. He has told us that he is ready to help us combat those lies. And I really do believe in our moments of weakness, he is the one who actually does combat the lies. He becomes the shield for us when we can no longer care for ourselves. And all we have to do, here's the mind bender here for me at least. That is such an incredible offer from God. And all that he asks us to do is to receive it. That's it. I mean, if we went to like Walmart, this would be like a $4 million item on a shelf. We would not have enough money to buy this type of care, love, and support. But what Jesus says here is, listen, these things are powerful and amazing. And all I need you to do is look to me and ask for it. If you want truth, look to me and I'll hand you the belt. And I'll help you tighten it around your waist and your heart. And when we do that, Jesus begins a process in us of healing. He helps us to learn where our strength in this life comes from. It ultimately comes from him. And what he does ultimately is he diffuses the lies. So I ask you this morning, what are you waiting for? Don't leave this place today trusting in anything but the truth God declares about you in Jesus. If you don't know what that truth is, let us know in that card. We'll try to help you understand what that means. If you have questions about that truth, don't leave this room without taking a next step, without following God where he's leading you, without believing that Jesus really does love you, that he has died for you and he cherishes you. He already knows your struggles and he knows the challenges you face in light of them. And he has promised to help lead you through them, all of us. And so this day, don't cower in fear. Stand up, put on the belt of truth, and take for the first time or in a renewed way a firm stand in Jesus. You stand in the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. And the way we begin to experience that is by tightly buckling his belt of truth around our lives. Pray with me.